Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 356. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there... Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today, we are going to continue our exploration of psychedelics in therapy and particularly in working with trauma survivors. My guest today is Dr. Jahan Kemsezadeh. Jahan Kemsezadeh, PhD, completed his dissertation on psychedelics in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. His book, The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, and the Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach, is published by North Atlantic Books and distributed by Penguin Random House. Jahan earned his Master's in Consciousness and Transformative Studies from John F. Kennedy University and his bachelor's from the University of Arizona with a major in philosophy and minors in physics, psychology, and mathematics. Aside from academic work, he has undergone several major trainings, including graduating from the Hakomi Somatic Psychotherapy Program and training within the Mazatec mushroom tradition. He assisted the Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy Certificate training at CIIS for two years, 
and mentors at the newly emerging School of Consciousness Medicine. He works as a facilitator for legal psilocybin mushroom ceremonies in Jamaica with Atman Retreats, one of the few opportunities afforded worldwide where people can legally experience psilocybin. Jahan is on the Psilo Health Integration Team, a content advisor for the Synthesis Psychedelic Guide Training Program, and volunteers at the Zendo Project, which provides psychedelic harm reduction. I'm very grateful that Jahan took the time to speak with me on Therapy Chat over summer of 2022. In June, we met for this conversation virtually. And he is very passionate about this subject and very knowledgeable. And I really enjoyed learning from him in more depth. You know, we've talked about cannabis and we've talked about MDMA and a little bit about ketamine, but we haven't talked much about psilocybin. So I thought this was a really important conversation, really interesting, and he literally wrote the book. So let's dive into my conversation with Jahan Kemsezadeh. And before we get into it, I just want to remind all the therapists who are listening that Trauma Therapist Network membership is open for you to join our community where we talk about things like this in depth. It's a community space for trauma therapists and a supportive place to land when you're feeling isolated, wondering if you want to stay in our field. I hope you do. And even if you don't, we talk about other ways to use trauma therapy skills. So there's a place for you if you would like to join us. And there's a link in the show notes to get a special discount. So I hope to see you in the Trauma Therapist Network community and you can learn all about it at the link in the show notes. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so happy to be interviewing Dr. Jahan Kamsezadeh. Jahan, thank you, thank you so much. To be here. Yes, thank you so much for being here. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your book, The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution on the Planet. Big topics. So I can't wait to dive into exploring your book and what you do in your work, but will you start off just by telling our audience a little more about who you are and what you do? Totally. Been deeply interested in psychedelics for 20 years now. Happy. I had a life-changing experience with psychedelics at 18 and happy to go into more of that in a little bit later. But as I kept moving forward with the focus on the spirituality and science and just personal growth, it became clear and clear to me that psychedelics had been the greatest catalysts in myself for transformation. And then I became also clear that it was perhaps the best catalyst for transformation for everybody, perhaps, and for culture. And I think a lot of the science has really come to show with an 80% success rate with treatment-resistant depression, 67% of people with the right setting have a mystical experience with psilocybin. And so I ended up after my bachelor's, which was in philosophy and minors in physics, classified for math and psychology. I came to the Bay Area and got my master's in consciousness and transformative studies, and then continued to get my doctorate at the... California Institute of Integral Studies in the Philosophy, Cosmology, Consciousness Department. And during this time, I was studying human history, the development of matter, like cosmology from atoms to molecules to cells, all the way to how does consciousness develop and evolve and keep growing. And as a side thing, I was really deeply interested in therapy, had continued to go into it for four or five years, was in diamond approach for four years. I took every class I could in the workshops at CIS as a student worker in terms of therapy. 
And I had never seen so much healing with myself and others in this area. And so I decided to also get trained in it. I did two years of somatic psychotherapy training in Hakomi. I did a multi-year medicine training within the Mazatec mushroom tradition. I assisted for two years at the psychedelic certificate training at the California Institute of Integral Studies. I mentored for a year in the School of Conscious Medicine. I'm now a consultant for the curriculum at Synthesis. And I've been for a few years now holding legal psilocybin ceremonies in Jamaica with Altman retreats. And my dissertation was on the topic, again, for varieties of reasons to get into. I focused on psilocybin mushrooms because they helped me a lot. And I felt they were the most accessible psychedelics for the population worldwide, over 200 different species, psilocybin mushrooms across the planet. And what interested me was also the deep, long history with the relationship of psilocybin and humans. So that was a big part of the book. And I spent a few years focusing very deeply to create this large level of stories, very well, let's say, researched inside of this over 400 unique citations in there. And I read 75 books on psychedelics just for the book. So I was very happy to finally have that to come to completion. And then it was just published and now out in the world. Congratulations. What a timely topic. Many people are becoming more aware of psychedelics and their healing properties. And like the culmination of your study at this moment, this book is very important. So can you talk a little bit about what brought you into, you mentioned psilocybin being specifically very helpful for you. Can you talk a little bit about that awareness? Yeah, certainly. My biographical background, my dad was from Iran, my mom from Mexico. They were both immigrants and illegal for many years. And so there was a lot of trauma at home, social, economic, and so on. It's the life for myself I experienced is very hard. And by the time I was 15, it was suicidal, depressed, and an atheist, right? And that continued. And so there's a lot of like existential crisis of just like, why does life exist? And really didn't see any proof of any kind of spiritual reality for the most part. And on the way, uh, soon after graduating from high school to see my favorite band, Tool, play a concert. Somebody I'd just met that day gave me a handful of mushrooms. I took them, thinking, I'm like, this is going to be a really good day. Little did I know it was probably the most important and transformative day of my life so far, even 20 years later. That's the day that had the most impact. And before this, I was spending almost six hours a day walking for about seven, eight months because I was in that depression, existential kind of crisis, trying to figure out what's the point of life? What's the point of my life? How did we as human beings evolve? Big bang till now. And there's some major missing pieces in terms of why did we catalyze out of the animal kingdom? Still in it, but we, there's a huge separation between our level of awareness, it seems, and the rest of the animals. And a lot of what I had been thinking about came to this accumulation during this actual the medicine journey. As Tool took the stage, I had this experience of dissolving and about to die, which is very frightening, especially as an 18-year-old. But I was very curious, having thought a lot about death at this point. And so I relaxed and let this process continue to unfold. And so when I came in, it felt like I crossed this threshold and there was this huge explosion and expansion in my consciousness. I felt I became this whole sold out arena and I could feel my body vibrating with a deep sense of love. And the sense was that this had always been there underneath my awareness. So it felt very familiar, even though I hadn't felt it within this life. And I felt I was eternal, that I would exist after death and have always existed. This is just a part of the structure of who we are. 
And as I let myself feel into this, which was the most serene feeling I ever had, a voice arose in my consciousness. And there was a sense of recognition that it was God. Again, I was an atheist. And so I asked, in my mind, is this real? The voice said yes. And I just broke down crying. And I cried for like the next 30 minutes, like hard, just gushing rivers of tears. And while the concert was happening, just staring at the ceiling. And there's a sense of union with everything. And all the way where it felt like I knew the location of every atom in the cosmos because you're connected to this larger mind that's connected to everything. And I felt that this being was a witness behind my consciousness, seeing everything and hearing everything behind me my entire life, but it was also within everybody else. And it was by far the most best feeling a sense of wholeness and homecoming I had ever felt. And this continued for a while. And it said that love's the most important thing in our existence, followed by learning. And you keep these two values in this order. You won't have to worry about the complexity of everything else in life. And show that we, our bodies are space time suits to move through this reality. And so it shifted and it felt it was like the most real thing I'd ever experienced that the rest of my life was more of an illusion compared to this. It was that level of deep visceral aliveness. And so that we're actually in heaven, that there's all the resources that we need for everything on this planet to really make a really harmonious, sustainable and creative life. But it's just the collective perception that holds us back. We're not treating ourselves and each other in the environment in that way, but that will eventually happen. So it gave me tremendous hope and resources moving forward. After that ended, and I thought about it maybe every day for the next seven years. And really kind of shifted the focus of my life. At the time, 2002, there was almost no research going on in this. And so it really looked really hard and far to get into. But there was this deep sense of knowing that like, it will come back. And as again, as I moved towards the master's and doctors, it was a big kind of focus of like, this is the most real thing I could be doing. And as you shared now, it's timely. So it's nice that to feel like the rest of the culture's kind of caught up because for a while, yeah. Going into this, I'm like, well, I even have a profession. I know I have to study this. Is it going to be received? And now it's being received better than I can ever hoped. Very warm, widely, with almost no real opposition. And I'm really glad to see that. Yeah, me too. And I like something that you specifically mentioned was about psilocybin being the most accessible of these psychedelic medicines. And it's interesting because it seems like right now at the same time, there is a dramatic increase in interest in psychedelic medicines use in therapy and for healing. So whether it's in therapy for healing, or if it's in indigenous practices for healing, there's a tremendous interest. And at the same time, there's an interesting, I don't know if you've I'm sure you've probably noticed this, but there's also a great increase in interest in just mushrooms. And like people are talking about mushroom tea and mushrooms for brain focus. And there's all these supplements for mushrooms. And I don't know, I was wondering if you could give some of an overview of like the mycelium, I think it is what mushrooms are and how they fit into like, because it seems related to me that mushrooms are so integral in our earth's functioning and what you're talking about in this sort of like human nature, universal connection that comes with psilocybin. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that in. I love that we're going right into that topic. And I think we have a lot to owe to Paul Stamets, the mycologist, for really kind of popularizing the importance of mushrooms. I think with him and also on board as Terrence McKenna, who died about 20 years ago, they kind of both devoted their entire lives 
to the fungi kingdom and bringing education and all this ways that they really brought that forward. And so for those with a quick background, fun, the fungi kingdom is one of the three large kingdoms on our planet, right? So we have like two smaller kind of singular cells and bacteria, and then we have the plant kingdom, the fungi kingdom, and the animal kingdom, and they are completely different, right? So it's easy to think of for people to put fungi as, a, as plants, for example, but it seems they're actually a little bit closer to animals. So it's, again, mm. the completely different categorical structure. And the fungi kingdom evolved about 2 billion years ago, right? So it's quite back, while the animal kingdom evolved about 500 million years ago. So it supersedes animals tremendously. One of the first larger intelligent life forms to evolve, and as many listeners might know, life itself really evolved out of the waters and then onto land. At first, the small kind of cellular life came onto land, and then the mycelial structure, the fungi came down, broke that those life forms and created nutrients and created soil for plant life to evolve out of the water. And it's thought now that the mycelium, the fungi, mycelium is a larger body of fungi, was the first root systems for plants. So mycelium is this large underground web structure that connects all the plants in an environment, sometimes stretching for miles. 90% of plants have a symbiotic relationship to mycelium. 80% of them go out of existence to mycelium die. And so soon after the plants came out of the waters, then the animals, the insects, and then the larger animals followed them onto land as sources of food. And so they've really been the backbone, you can say, the very grounding of biosphere and complex life. They break down dead matter, break in nutrients for themselves, and then pass it on to all the, the plant life around it. And they send electrical signals between all the plant lives. And so it really creates this cohesive web in the environment. And again, our very foundation in existence is living on top of them and it always has and that's why it's so interesting that psilocybin itself grows out of this vast underground web which our biological bodies have always actually directly and indirectly been on top of yeah and looking at your book which i've looked through but not deeply thoroughly read it's very so comprehensive and i want to dig deeper into it the thing that came to mind just like in a very simple way from someone who doesn't know one iota of what you know about it but that hallucinogenic experiences or psychedelic experiences happen they're a thing so there's a reason it's not just a random thing like an accidental though someone accidentally left grapes in the sun and figured out it makes wine and wine gives you a pleasant feeling when you drink it like it's there's and animals eat plants and berries and things that give them those kinds of experiences so it's not but in my mind before reading within your book I was like thinking about it that it was really sort of just random mm -hmm. and that doesn't make sense really totally no I think I'm glad you're bringing that in and I think it does require quite a paradigm shift to really it's like a paradigm expansion because it's an widen our scope to really understand what is going on. I was really taken by this question of how do psychedelics exist by the time I was 15, because I was just like, how could you take something and have such an intricate, you can say hallucination or vision? And as the science moves forward, it's far from random. It creates, I'll focus on psilocybin for now, a hyper-connected brain state, stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons, increases neuroplasticity, re-enlivens dendrites 
instead of atrophied. And as the more experiential studies have shown, people that take psilocybin right sense setting, even 20 years later, say it's one of the top three most important experiences of their life, right? So the experience itself many times isn't experiences random, but like high level ordered level of consciousness and awareness, depth of feeling, a very complex insights of thought, increase in empathy and in cognitive faculties, right? So it's more moving towards order instead of randomness. And so, again, it's just like, how did this develop? Like, how did something that is so beautiful that creates these artistic expressions and deep spiritual insights in you come to be? I mean, even a lab, we can't really necessarily produce that. This is, I believe, closer to the intelligence of how our body develops. It's 37 trillion cells. It's so organized. You don't have to think about your heart pumping. It just does. It's just this deep holistic system. But then we have to extrapolate this level of thinking of what happens to this body, how deeply interconnected and complex it is to the ecosystem and environment, because that's happening in ecosystems also. And that's the context, I believe, to see how does this kind of compound evolve? As I mentioned, the history, we've been on top of these life forms is mycelium forever in terms of our human history. And as I mentioned, the mycelium is this large underground web, and out of it grows these mushrooms, this perfect cap and stem formation, easy to spot and easy to grab. Inside some of these, over 200 different species worldwide, grows psilocybin. And psilocybin fits into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptors in our brain better than serotonin itself with no biological toxicity, increasing hyperconnected brain states and I would say creativity that really had helped humanity. And for an insight, it's just like, well, why and how did this develop is well, the ecosystem has a lot of, say, initiative to bring ecological awareness. And I think for me, a really good grounding came in the book, Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and Evolution in the Noosphere by Professor Richard Doyle. He got his doctorate in linguistics and now teaches English and technology at Penn State University. And for his research, he read thousands of trip reports. And he put forward that the signature of the psychedelic insight is that the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected living system and they should be returned ecodelics. So what these substances do is they dissolve our individual awareness. A lot of people can use this term like ego death, but dissolves a sense of individuality and boundedness. And then we feel one with nature and each other. And so the idea though, if we're looking at mycelium and what it does, as Paul Stamets and McKenna say, the mycelial structure can theoretically live forever if the host environment is healthy. You know, some of the lar- longest living organisms are m- fungi. Some of them are five to 8,000 years old. The largest living, largest organism on the planet is fungi. It's up in Oregon. I think it's like four miles long, right? So if it keeps the environment healthy, including the higher ordered organisms like itself, it, it keeps on going. So we're in this deep symbiotic relationship with all the plants and all the fungi and the animals for the most part. And I think this is a really important compound that creates a state of homeostasis within the environment. Wow. Yeah. So that is touching on, but I don't know if you can go into more depth about the history of psychedelics and more recently, like the research on psychedelics. And I guess maybe it's not all for therapy purposes. I'm not sure. I think the applications are far reaching than we've ever even been able to do studies on. So we've done studies on spirituality, depression, addiction, anxiety, OCD, addiction, alcohol, and nicotine so far with psilocybin. And I think you can go much more. Right. And those findings have been very positive, more than almost all the other modalities, which says a lot. The history is deeply exciting, as I find. And as you kind of alluded to, there's other plants, other animals that eat psychedelics. There's a good book called Animals and Psychedelics by Giorgio Staramani, an Italian ethnobotanist. And so it's part of the animal kingdom. Ronald K. Siegel, he was a UCLA psychopharmacologist, taught there for 20 years. 
He said the drive to alter our consciousness chemically is the fourth drive of evolution after hunger, thirst, and sex. An animal, given the opportunity, would change its consciousness. And he says about 93% of the animal kingdom changes its consciousness chemically. We're just, we're normally around animals that are more domesticated in a contained environment. So we don't see that. But throughout the animal kingdom, it's quite common. And so the idea is that our ancestors also play into these patterns. And as Paul Samets notes, the most common mushroom in the Africa savanna where we evolved is of a psilocybin variety. And this idea first put forward by Terence and Dennis McKenna was that mushrooms, psilocybin, was the actual catalyst of human consciousness. So about 5 million years ago, our ancestors were living in the canopies of the trees as primates. For about 50 million years, we lived on the treetops. Weather patterns began to recede, pushing the, the tree life kind of away and drying the landscape. And so our ancestors came down to the ground, eventually becoming bipedal and walking around. And in looking for new sources of food, they would have constantly come across the psilocybin mushrooms. They're very easy at the spot. And once we begin to follow cattle, which we know we did very well, mushrooms are coprophilic. They grow on dung. So we would have been constantly in our tracks. And there would have been many huge positive benefits of taking psilocybin. In the 70s, there was a Ron, Robert Fisher, Ronald Fisher was the psychologist that did research on the increase of visual acuity in psilocybin in small amounts. So if you take psilocybin, like microdoses, it increases visual acuity, which is depth perception. Objects become more clear and distinct. So very helpful for noticing snakes in the grass or predators hiding or looking for new sources of food. I mean, the increase of our vision is the most important sense that we use for survival. But indirectly, I think for a lot of people that take psilocybin, it increases all our senses. Sight, smell, taste, and touch. You're just more sensitive in general, even including to your feelings and thoughts. At slightly higher amounts, uh, McKenna theorized that it would increase sexual copulation. So it brings up a lot less restlessness and sexual energy and desire for empathy and connection. And so then now you have a primate group that sees more better, but also is copulating more, right? At higher amounts, as studies have now shown for about 50 years, it can catalyze mystical states, right? And so here we have eventually the development of rituals and myths and the beginnings of religion. So it gives a very grounded chemical, archaeological, and ecological explanation for the creation of religious thought and impulses. And so the idea is that our ancestors did this millions of times over millions of years and increasing pace at smaller amounts. And as the brain became more adaptive, again, we have a, the 5-H2A serotonin receptors, psilocybin fits in so well, but it fits into our serotonin receptors six times more better than chimpanzees. So at some level, there was this divergence that the people, the beings that use psilocybin as the lineage we came out. There's archaeological evidence going back nine to 10,000 years of cave paintings in Africa showing the mushroom use and the cave paintings throughout Europe showing mushroom use. And then once you get to the Americas, it's just full-fledged on with the Mayans a few thousand years ago, leaving about 200 different mushroom stones. And with the Aztecs, as the Europeans went over there to see them, they chronicalized very well that there was large level mushroom rituals, even in political settings. So unfortunately, here comes a lot of the big downfall. I'm not sure how it happened more in, in Europe and in Africa, but in the West, when the conquistadors came, they were ordered to eradicate mushroom use very specifically. And 96% of the Aztecs were killed. So nine-tenths of the population from North, Central, and South America were eradicated. It was the largest ethnocide in human history. And psychedelic use was rampant in North, Central, South America. There's 50 different kinds of psilocybin mushrooms just in Mexico alone. And so a lot of their history, their language, their religion, everything was just taken over. 
And it's only now going back, we can see just how big it was. And we know now largely of mushroom use because of the Mazatecs, who they see themselves as the descendants of the Mayans. They kind of kept this tradition alive and survived the conquistadors. And in 1955, Gordon Wasson, a banker, went down there with um, Curriendera Maria Sabina, had some psilocybin mushrooms, published his account in Life magazine in 1957. And that was the first time Western culture in a wide level became aware of psychedelics, specifically mushrooms. And quickly over the next decade, it became a fascinating point of interest with major studies going on in Harvard and then the rise of the whole kind of hippie movement in liberation of a lot of people from African-Americans to women and so on. I think these expanded states with psilocybin and LSD really kind of help move cultures forward. Yeah, I just am struck by the tension between the mind expansion and this like colonization, shutting down mystical things and non-ordinary experiences or whatever. So interesting and Makes me think about a lot of things, but I'll try to stay on track here. So as you mentioned, there was a lot of research from the point from you mentioned 1957, there was a lot of research into psychedelic use. And then the, I guess it was like the Nixon administration with the war on drugs was like trying to shut it down. And now it's like beginning to... I don't know, creep back into the public consciousness. So how do you see psychedelics fitting into kind of the big picture of life and the universe first, before we get more into how it fits into like psychology and just healing work in general? See, from an experiential standpoint, they deeply connect us to the universe. For me, they're the most mysterious things I've come across in this life. As somebody that's just focused on, say, philosophy and history and evolution, I don't know there's anything we've ever seen that is such an you could say anomaly and really forces us to rethink evolution in general, but the structure and nature of our consciousness. Like myself, you don't necessarily have to come in with much of a background. I was an atheist and then spirituality became like the main focus of my life, right? It's just, it kind of wakes you up to this underlying reality that is there. And it's not a given. 67% of people have mystical experiences. So there's a percentage of people that they don't and may not need to, but for a lot of us, it's changed our lives quite a bit. And so I'm still trying to figure out the link because I can really have a framework work between us and the Earth's ecosystem of how psychedelics really deepen us into that big picture, one with the planet, deep experiences, seeing how it evolves. I can see our big history. But strangely, as you take them, there's feelings of becoming one with the universe. Right. One with the divine, which is much larger than our planet. Mm. So I don't think we're at a point yet to draw that link. For example, Terrence McKenna, he put forward that the mushroom said to him, that it's an extraterrestrial and spores can survive through space and it came from other planets. And so it moves from planet to planet and creates this kind of entangled mind that connects all the life forms, right? Big picture thinking. I mean, the logic makes sense, but it's also so outside of the paradigm we have now, right? Because as far as we know, we really only know about our planet. We don't know how things evolve in other planets and how they can move from planet to planets. But it would give some reasoning of why this can be so much larger than the the context we hold here is, is just on earth. I don't know if I'm being honest, because a lot of people, they hold this chance of like, maybe we don't need them completely. I don't think we can move forward in our evolution without them. I think they are the reason we've gotten this far. I think a lot of the problems that we've had as a culture and society on this planet is because we haven't used them. There's states of consciousness I don't know we can get to without them. And as somebody that loves all the modalities of transformation, whether it's therapy, meditation, different levels of, of community work, yoga, we've had a lot of these practices for a long time now, and we still have major world 
structures that haven't evolved they need to. So a lot of people aren't going to sit there and just meditate all the time, right? So there's this is very effective in the course of a day. I've had and seen many clients, they're like, I just did 20 years of therapy, right? Or are they breaking it down into new levels of awareness and healing and realization in a day? It's not a guarantee, but it's fast. And so we need something that moves very quick. And again, it's really kind of contextualizing this, that this is part of the earth's processes that have always been there. We're just coming back into a, alignment with it. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think something that's kind of in my mind as we're talking about this is I'm thinking about my own experiences with psychedelics when I was much younger. And as I mentioned to you before, not, I had a lot of unresolved trauma that I had no awareness of. And I had never heard about, I'd never heard the word trauma unless it was like related to a car accident and someone's physical injuries, not emotional. This is the eighties. And I mentioned this to you already before, but I had in my experience, it was always like, I would be very super anxious and overwhelmed with anxiety and feeling mistrustful and all these things about the people around me, which is consistent with trauma. And then, but there would always be a point every time where I would have this, well, almost every time where I would have this experience of, oh, now I understand it all. Oh, that's it. That's, and it was like the meaning of life or something like that was what it represented to me. And I was not religious at all. So I wouldn't have called myself an atheist. I was just not, I had no thought of religion. I just didn't believe in it. I didn't even know what it was called, but then I wouldn't remember the next day. I would be like, what was that? There was something I realized. <laughs> what was it? I would never remember. So I don't know if that's because of trauma and dissociation where what you, what became, came to your awareness, maybe I was in a, was having a trauma reaction in that experience. And then it kind of just went back away into a more unconscious space until the next time. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. And I was like, oh, this time I'm going to write it down. And then I would write whatever on a napkin. And then the next day look at like, what's this scribble all over the paper? I don't know what this is. So I could never really have like it sustain. And I'm sort of curious about, I don't know, any thoughts you might have about that? I don't think we need to hold on to in each moment, every thought we've ever had, right? It's just, it's not yeah, necessary, even though we want yeah. So I think experiences and including contemplation and development of thought still has a deep impact on us, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't stay at the forefront of our cognitive awareness. The same way I think dreams influence us and we don't really remember them. It just has a big impact in the feeling state when you wake up. Everything Very that true. has led to this moment has impacted you in terms of your growth or your hurt or your trauma. And a lot of it, remember, like trauma, for example, a lot of it could be pre-verbal first three years, impacts your whole life and you don't remember it. So I think it's the same with healing and development and growth also. And so with psychedelics, I mean, they can be so expansive that it, they're hard to interpret and bring back. So often the states are, let's say, ineffable. It's, it's really hard to put words to it. So they can't really think about it or even put it, describe it to people later. And yet it'd still be life-changing. So in these really expansive states, I mean, you're lucky if you bring back sometimes just 10 or 20% of it because it's so large. You're translating this other structure of consciousness into this one you have now. And a lot is lost in that translation. It's great if you do have a guide, somebody sitting there that's just taking notes the whole time. And you know, so they can remind you when people remind you, you're like, oh, yeah. Like if somebody was taking notes mm -hmm. of these ideas and inside you had and next they told you like, oh, that's what it was. It would come back to you. But you need to be reminded. So somebody else sitting there taking notes is amazing for this process. Without That's it, the integration. 
information. Now that you're saying it, that makes such sense. Thank you. Totally. I mean, it's part of my job. I want them to get the most out of it as possible. Right. So I'm taking down every important big thing, but even then it's limited. So it's hugely important and beneficial on a high level, but I'm also, I'm not inside of them. Right. And especially if they're really deep in the journey, sometimes they can't speak and they don't have words. And sometimes them speaking takes them out of their process, feeling really deeply. So, and they're having some deep visions inside. So even though I'm taking notes of what they're saying and doing, that's like still only like 20% of it because I'm not in there having that deep experience myself. And so they might remember deep core, they might forget deep core parts of the experience, but it still transforms them and changes them. So I've seen so many people come out of just decades of just depression, increasing self-esteem, a deep sense of safety, because it had impact and it washed over them. And some of those structures that were holding that were maladaptive dissolve. And so it's very often that transformation happens with them out understanding what occurred. We always want to understand everything. Yes. And well, that, that really helps what you just said, because as you were saying that I also had like an awareness that what was coming, what did hold or sustain after those experiences and into 30 years later is this deep belief that we are all connected and we're connected with everything and not just even earth, but we're all connected with all. (laughs) And that love is why love is what it's about. And that, so that's consistent with just what you say in your book. So that seems validating to me. Uh, If I had to really highlight, I think that is the main insight across the board, not even just in psychedelics, I think in life and spirituality and contemplation, meditation, all the mystical experiences is really arriving to this unity. It's a, such a simple thing to say, like we're just saying we're all one, but the implications are profound doesn't change everything about us and the way we live, right? Fear goes out the window, really. A sense of like, if I'm looking at Maslow's hierarchy, which is a, a model I really love quite a bit, so there's a development of needs. You feel more secure and safe because we're all connected. You also have a deep sense of belonging. There's more easier to connect with other people. The third stage, there's more self-esteem connected to all of it. Self-actualization is bringing this as part of my identity. And I think at the core level that we are love because that's a very unit of force. When you love somebody, you want to be close to them. It's the sense of like, I'm feeling one with everything. Love is the emotional response to that. And so that self-actualization is really solidifying that because self-esteem is still, I don't, as a deficiency, I don't love myself yet. I'm not enough. And you're trying to just gather more and more. Once that's said, there's a deep knowing of who I am and that's not changeable. And then self-transcendence is Maslow had put in the last many years of his life is the top part of the hierarchy, which is this ability and focus on wanting to be of service because I already know who I am. I'm love and we're all one. The most meaningful thing I can do is to help others and be of service. It's not just about me because the me is everybody. And so that sense of unity really heals pretty much every level and really kind of, I think it satiates this deep desire we have to, for understanding, self-realization and to find meaning in our lives. Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience, and one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn, it's intuitive, the customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for 
several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Hey therapists, this is Laura Reagan. If you listen to this show regularly, you're hearing a lot about trauma and attachment, and you probably know these two underlying concerns are what drive most people to seek therapy regardless of how the symptoms present. The good news is trauma is becoming a buzzword. And that's great because more people are discovering there's a reason they feel the way they do. And now they can name what they need help with, but they need to find therapists who can help them. And that's where you come in. Join Trauma Therapist Network's therapist directory now at the founding member price of $33 a month. And you'll receive a beautiful listing that can function as a web page if you don't want to set up your own site or even if you have your own. And you can include links to videos of yourself, blog posts, and you're part of a community. Right now we have quarterly calls for all members. Our first one happened in October and it was lovely. Everyone said they really enjoyed it, but I'm adding more content that will begin to be available March 1st, 2022. And if you sign up for February 1st, you'll be locked in at the founding member price of $33 a month. February 1st, the price is going to go up to $97 a month to reflect the added value of these new offerings. And everybody who signs up as a founding member for $33 a month will get all that content beginning March 1st, as long as you keep your membership. I'm really excited about what's to come. We're going to have weekly live calls, four per month, and one will be a Q&A, one will be focused on self-care, one will be case consultation, and one will be training on a certain topic. Hurry on over to traumatherapistnetwork.com to sign up and become a founding member of this beautiful community of wonderful, passionate, and skilled trauma therapists. We need you. People who have trauma are out there looking for you and they don't know how to discern that you specialize in trauma. So come on over to the Trauma Therapist Network and get listed. Join our community and this movement, traumatherapistnetwork.com. Yeah, that's, it is hopeful, like you said, mm. especially when there's so much division and violence in our world yeah. right now. Totally. It causes pain. Absolutely. I think that's, it's, it's, and I don't know anything else that does it this quickly at all. Some people are lucky and there's gracious, spontaneous experiences of oneness people have, which is amazing. And or one in a million, it's far and few between. And I, there's a deep intuition of it, I think, within everybody, but we have so many blocks because it's not being forced in society. You just look at the politics. It's so divisive. Mm -hmm. So we can't look outwards and uh, other people that don't have that grounding to find that truth. So it's something inside that dissolves and realize that our very being is the structure of everything. And if you look at the sciences, it's really easy to see everything's interconnected. But if we look at our social systems, we can really kind of I want to say uh, we're not at a place where that affirms that deep truth. Very much not there now, mm -hmm. but there's hope to get there. I think so. This gives me hope. Yeah. 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 So would you be willing to talk a little bit about what happens during, I mean, you've mentioned it a little bit, but you've talked about how you do these ceremonies or sessions with people in Jamaica where it's legal to do this. What does a session that people have look like and how, what happens for them? Like, how's it structured? 
so over there at Otman Retreats in Jamaica, we rent this private little resort on the beach, all inclusive, like meals and everything. So the person, they just have to take care of the flight and get there. We, we have everything kind of planned out and worked out for them there. We do a pretty good level of screening calls, you know, maybe a thousand people on a wait list because we only do 12 at a time and we do two retreats back to back. And so because of the level of organization, and then also in terms of just how much support there is, we have to make sure the person is grounded enough to show, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of people with a host of disabilities and personalities disorders that I think could benefit, but we don't, we're not going to take them right now for our safety and theirs. So it's a lot of people, I'd say 70% are working on depression, a lot of people anxiety, maybe 10% come out of curiosity, but people are generally propelled in psychedelics for the most part out of pain. Something has mm-hmm. been not working and is hurting for a long time. And they've tried all the other methods. They've tried all therapy for years. They've tried other medications. They see the science and they get really excited. They're willing to make the trip. And so then we have a screening call, a long application process. Then we have a screening call that meet with a facilitator for 30 to 50 minutes so we can actually make sure that they're doing okay. Once they land over there, we give them time to settle in. Then we have an orientation going over, checking all the rules, logistics. And then something we learned the first retreat, but you know, as most people can imagine is very obvious, is a deep part of this experience is actually the group, just as this is with humans. Like mm-hmm. your coworkers really matter, your families matter, you know, your communities, you're really impacted by the other people in the space. And so if I'm looking at Maslow's hierarchy, and the deep way to create safety is by having a deep sense of belonging. So we move into about three hours of interpersonal exercises, creating connections and these connection games that really inspire vulnerability and authenticity. You know, so within the first night of three hours, everybody's feeling so subtle. They're so excited. And because they're actually, I mean, of course, people are showing up anxious. They don't know anybody. So having these deep connections about revealing oneself to other participants and it's a very like group they've all coming because of some problem and coming out to this kind of far off place for this things really settle that evening then we have small group checks so each facilitator is taking care of four participants so we do small group checks to go even deeper on the personal reasons these people are coming in here for the next morning we have one-on-one check-ins so individual private check-ins with each person then get together for a large group opening ceremony go over logistics but also personal shares anything wants to say and then everybody's in a very large hall. We give the first round of medicine, psilocybin mushrooms. But there's a general most part pattern to the structure of psilocybin, even though you never know what's going to come up, which I think is part of its gift because you can keep growing infinitely with psilocybin. It's different every time and it meets you where you're at. But some common characteristics is the increase of bodily sensations and then large majority of people start to see geometry, just sacred, we could say sacred geometry, but patterns when they close their eyes and then also outside in the world, like honeycomb shapes, just multiply angered, very symmetric, intelligently crafted patterns, which is how amazing that's pretty much across the board. A lot of times people start seeing some kind of animals move towards them. So when you close your eyes, you're kind of taken into this visionary realm. You can say it's almost like a dream, but again, highly vivid. And you can say even intelligent and sometimes very coherent. There is, I think his name is Horace Grace Grant. He he did this dissertation on auditory voices in the psychedelic space in the 1990s at CIS. I referred to it in my book and he found about 40% of participants have, he called them auditory hallucinations, but you could say you're listening voices. And if you're doing this in indigenous context, context, you'd be like, oh, the spirit's coming and talking to me. Mm-hmm. Just when our psychotherapeutic model where everybody's autonomous and isolated from everything else, we, we say you're hallucinating. But there's a deep sense that a lot of these voices, they're helping you and they're, help, they're showing you a way forward and they seem to know a lot. And a lot of times these beings will, within your vision, say materialize because you, a lot of times you can see the shape and the form. 
as I mentioned, 67% people have mystical experience. So there's a lot of encounters with just God, but not everybody goes in this transpersonal realm. A lot of times it stays within the biographical area and it's just personal history and resolving deep traumas and never moves into the spiritual domain. So that's completely okay because they're both healing. There's about 10% of people that don't get a whole lot out of it. And so that's definitely within my area been an anomaly of like, wow, you can take a lot of psilocybin and almost nothing happens. So it's not a blanket. I would say the hardest part of my job is dealing with expectations. They hear all this stuff. There's a lot of pain and people think with one ceremony, my life's going to change. And it's like, I'd say that happens half the time and it's not a guarantee. And so people can get very disappointed. So then we're dealing with that. I come with this huge hope. But for the most part, just as the rating with our company, it's like nine tenths out of people come out very happy and they have a lot of growth. It's a very safe compound. If people feel safe, it's there's no biotoxicity and things go by really smooth. So then we offer a second round, 90 minutes in. If people want to boost, most people will. And the whole thing's over in about six hours. And there could be a lot of somatic releasing with psilocybin. And as we know, a lot of trauma is just stored in the body. And so if you could think of an animal, a zebra, whatever, just being chased, there's all this cortisol running through it, a lot of tension in the body. Once it gets away, it shakes out to relieve the tension. So come back to in the state of just calmness and ease. And us as humans, we go through all these stressful moments and we don't shake it out unless you have a mm-hmm. yogic or kind of dance practice on a regular basis that just gets stored in the body. So it's very common to see a lot of shaking and moving in just cathartic relief. It's very common for people to cry. There's almost like no hiding from yourself on psilocybin. So it really kind of confronts you with your truth, which is great for integration and wholeness. But it's also nice to highlight that it's not always comfortable. Uh, I've had the most hardest agonizing times in my life on psychedelics, but the most blissful. And even those that were very difficult were very growth enriching very growth enriching, but it can be very uncomfortable. Deep grief can come up. I mean, things are just really hard and sad. I've seen people in deep pain because of trauma. And when they come out, a lot of the times they feel um, much lighter, able to let go of addictions, for example, because they've processed the pain that they've had inside. And other times it's so euphoric, they're just crying because of how much love they feel. So it's a wide range of experiences. And again, I think it's beautiful. It changes every time. After the ceremony ends, we have a small closing circle. People will be pretty tired and exhausted. Even though it's six hours, their nervous system and their emotions and minds just went through a lot. So we just have some food to go to sleep. And then the next day is spent entirely for integration. We have a two to three hour group circle, individual check-ins again, time to relax on the beach. We used to have the thing so structured because we wanted to offer so much. And we found out that people actually need like at least three hours of unstructured time to rest instead of moving from integration activity. People wanted or needed to just be on a hammock, go into the water, relax, or just talk among themselves as part of the integration. And then we'll come back, have a dinner, have kind of group kind of campfire. And the next day, because they got the rest all day before, we have a larger integration circle, not just from the ceremony, but the entire experience wrapping it up. And then people are able to go. And then we have another integration call about a week or two afterwards. So it's very kind of tightly packed and well say orchestrated, but there's a lot of support for just the one civil seven experience. Thank you for explaining that. And it's really interesting to me to hear the different ways that these types of experiences can be structured because I've heard a lot of different ways and they all have seemingly a lot of benefits. So with that, when people go back, so I guess I'll share, I've talked to and heard about people having experiences where they go, whether it's an ayahuasca ceremony or in Mexico, some people are doing the five, I think it's five ATP that you mentioned and five MEO DMT. Yes. Thank you. And Ibogaine 
and having powerful experiences that are transformative while they're there. But then when they return to their normal environment, some people have had a hard time returning into their life and maybe have like a, not necessarily with psilocybin, but just, is there anything you could say about those? Like what is beneficial to people when they are returning, reintegrating to their life to help with like either helping the healing keep moving forward or preventing like a sort of like a backlash effect. I don't know what else to call it. Yeah, no, thanks for saying I think that. The, and this is in reference to trauma, by the way. Yeah. Oh, good. good. No, thanks for putting that out there. Yeah. As, as you share, there's so many ways to hold space and have these psychedelic experiences all the way from, well, taking it from by yourself and then maybe like large festival like Burning Man and there's all these like harm reduction centers just having, somebody's having a hard psychedelic experience you take them to like the Zendo and they take care of them. And so there's large kind of festivals and then, there's a more indigenous kind of context, which is a kind of group rituals and ceremonies, as you shared with ayahuasca. I just went to a Santo Daime ceremony last weekend. So it's a very structured from like Brazilian kind of background, singing Portuguese the entire time. Everything's mm-hmm. in order. Everybody's wearing white. And it kind of brings that context. And it's a, it's more strict, not necessarily my favorite approach, but I just really love learning different ways mm-hmm. this can happen. And then we have the Western therapeutic model, which is more one-to-one like with a guide or a therapist. And I think each one kind of offers its own medicines and it has its own limitations. And so specifically, I think for working with trauma, the one-to-one is by far the best. There's not that much space for you and your personal self, but then also a lot of care support in a group ceremony in the sense of like, there's a guide with you the entire time for six hours full attention that can process everything. You know, don't we have in Ottman's nice hybrid because we have one person, the four people, and we're, we're hyper-attentive and we have all this one-on-one time all around it. But with traditional ceremonies, let's use Aya, for example, there's their prep for the most part, and I'm simplifying it, is pretty much have a nice clean diet leading up to it and keep that afterwards. That's the prep, mm-hmm. right? So there's no psychological real prepping. There's no, what's your traumas? Let's get to know you. I want to be aware of all this. But then you normally have a facilitator, maybe an assistant holding space, and you're kind of on your own through mm-hmm. the journey. And for the most part, because it's a group ceremony, and things are more kind of really structured. A lot of times you can't really speak a whole lot and you can't say a whole lot. So if you're having a huge trauma cathartic release, you're kind of forced to keep things quiet and inside, which it's can be very uncomfortable. And then afterwards, maybe you have one group integration circle, but then you're off in the world again, right? And so there's not that depth of connection that can happen with somebody else. It's just, but they also didn't have, when those were created, didn't have a background of trauma. Trauma is largely Western, I would say, awareness that we've gained. For them, yeah. it's negative spirits that are attached to you. And we got to get those spirits out. Instead of being like, oh, this is part of your biography. And there's like emotions that are stuck inside. As Ken Wilber kind of really kind of points out the kind of integral therapist, oh, integral philosopher that the shadow, the whole concept of the shadow and trauma was something that Western therapy kind of really brought into the larger level of knowledge. It's not necessarily found like in the Eastern traditions even. And so with the Western model, or if you're working with a therapist or guide, I haven't seen that level of uh, high level of backlash can continue to occur because that person generally, as we also have in Notman, is always available for you. So you can always reach out for integration sessions later, always, right? You're like, you're kind of making a commitment and openness to this person if something comes out three weeks or three months later and they need to digest something or process something, you're there for them, right? And so they're not left out in the world necessarily alone. 
most people come back. I mean, it's a high repeat rate because they get a lot out of it. So five or six months later, they might come back. So it's like an ongoing relationship, just like you would with a therapist. Therapist, you can see weekly, right? Here, you see them for a while, they come back later. And for myself, I really highly encourage for them to have other support systems. And we ask that you have other support systems, but also encourage them to have a therapist outside of this, right? Like I don't want to leave them alone. So they need somebody to process with. And if they don't have somebody, I'll be available. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, that does. And when I think what you're naming is the level of co-regulation that their nervous system, the individual's nervous system requires to be able to stay safe within the experience. It varies from person to person. And so people should probably be aware of that when they're going into these types of experiences, just to think about, well, what do I really need? And maybe hopefully talk about that with their therapist together to help prepare. Yeah. I think sometimes people seek psychedelic experiences rather than therapy. So they're not necessarily connected with therapy and they go, yeah, this is the thing that's going to heal me because people are hearing about it everywhere you turn. No, I think it's a great, say tried. like the medicine is absolutely incredible. Right. And then what heals a lot of times us in general is relationship and connection. That's where a lot of the wounding is and that's where it gets to heal. Exactly. So ha- having that presence there, that's really loving and caring and connected does wonders. Psychedelics themselves only go so far. They really do. Like if you're lonely, you could you keep taking psychedelics. You're still going to be lonely because there's a need that's not being met. Like connection. Like if you're hungry, you could keep taking psychedelics. You're still going to be hungry. Right. <laughs> so it's, it doesn't fix everything. Yeah. It can change your awareness. It can heal some deep emotions. But we still have needs that need to be met and connections are really important need on every level that we atrophy without connection. Yeah. And as you say that, I'm thinking about the people that I'm aware of who had those types of experiences. There were definitely attachment injuries early that were what, where they kind of got stuck after the experience was in like a shame spiral of I am bad Mm. and unlovable and just going into that pit and not being able to come back out. So that's exactly relational attunement is the antidote there. Totally. Absolutely. I love it. I've heard before that shame is a relational wound. We're not necessarily born with it at some point. We were being ourselves and it felt a part of us felt rejected either by our parents or at school or something. And I had to hide a part of myself. So it disconnects from the way we show up within ourselves and in connection and there's shame around and shame is pretty much, I don't like myself. I don't want to exist. I want to hide whatever aspect of you that has shame. And so the only way it heals is back through relationship by coming back into the light, coming back into connection with ourselves. And so a lot of self-love can help, but I, I think the end of the process is by then bringing ourselves fully back into relationship and the therapist is there to provide that space. So like non-judgmental, loving space, holding and connection. Yeah. So let's kind of, as we move toward the ends of end of our time for now, let's talk about how you see the use of psychedelics. Like what is the direction that you see the potential for psychedelics in healing psychologically and somatically? There's so much, this almost uh, this large chapter in the book, chapter six, and I had to break it down itself into 20 page sections. One section that covered psychotherapy and healing, one section that covered art and culture, one that started philosophy and science. 
and then another part on just economics because I think it's a, the, the structure that needs to shift for a lot of the other structures to shift it's, it's kind of the main thing that holds us back and so hopefully it's undisputed at this point how much uh, healing can be happening with psychedelics so again we have hardcore research that's been happening now for decades and so the benefits in neural I mean there's so much pain depression is rising anxiety is too I mean just the level of PTSD and trauma the, it's helpful in so many ways and then there's other areas I feel like we haven't gotten as much to that are highly I don't say helpful, but can help us continue to evolve. The area yeah, of creativity. So please do expand, please. Yeah, I want to yeah. discuss those. Yeah, so there's been a few studies on creativity and psychedelics in the 50s with LSD. And then more recently, some with psilocybin. And so for those that don't know, is LSD and psilocybin are very chemically similar. LSD is derived from ergot, which is a type of fungus itself. And you zoom into it, it looks like little mushrooms. And it's a derivation of what's in ergot. And pretty much one way to sing it, it kind of just cleans the parts of ergot that was toxic because it could be poisonous and gives us this compound. And, and so they did a study in the 60s where they took, and James Fadiman was a part of the study, like a guy that really kind of put forward and popularized microdosing. They found about 60 architects, scientists, mathematicians, artists, engineers that had been stuck on a problem for about 18 months and then gave them an LSD session to focus on their problem. And 90% of these people were able to solve the problem that they were stuck in for 18 months, right? And so this is one study, and there's been more recently, where this can help us solve a lot of the world's major problems and crises. It gets you out of your regular default mode network, your way of thinking, and creates this hyper-connected brain state, so it brings a lot more things available to you. And so whether it's engineering problems, scientific breakthroughs, economic issues, techniques across the board, we can deepen our problem-solving and the visionary skills, love the area of also visionary art. There's a huge area that has developed in the last few decades of art, including just visual art that's inspired by psychedelic states. Alex Gray's the most popular one. He's decades of doing work in this. And Andrew Jones is another very popular one because you can have these extreme heightened states that are archetypal, deeply enriching and when you see them within your consciousness, they could be better than the best CGI on the planet. It's like this augmented reality you go into, and you can have very skilled artists bring them out so that it create a, a deep sense of a inspiration. And a lot of times when people have had these experiences and they see the artwork, it kind of helps them pull them back into that state. You remember it more because you're like, well, oh, this is very profound. It deepens empathy. Studies have been done. It deepens empathy, which I think is a very strong need and bringing different viewpoints together, deepening relationships, deepening community deepening families so a lot of the healing i think there's these root words with healing wholeness and holy that can happen in a world can really be assisted by the use of psychedelics so as i mentioned i think it's the potential somewhat limitless like there's so much more that we can continue to do studies on and then uh, apply them to yeah yeah wow and will you say something about economics how you think that Mm. could shift with the help of psychedelics because yeah the capitalist thing is not working out real great for most people. Most people. Yeah, most people for sure. And I remember getting very clear about a decade ago now that almost all the large scale collective problems we have come down to economics. And I think that's a big thing I think to become aware of, whether it's war, racial issues, animal factory farming, ecological destruction. 
super tied towards it, including the climate crisis tie. So all these huge things that come down to it is because somebody's making a huge profit, right? Yeah. So capitalism by its nature, which is it's a focus is on capital. And the idea is this very kind of autonomous view that it's there for a specific person or whoever's on the top of this pyramid to acquire more wealth. And if it means extracting wealth from everybody else under them and extracting resources from the environment. And when you're bought into that system, you're like, that's the point of the game. And if you're not connected to some deeper, say, spirituality or sense of interconnection, and you don't know what life's about, and you're just seeing this material, physical reality, it's easier for some people to assume, like, well, I guess the point of our my life is to acquire more physical wealth. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of self-esteem part comes in with Maslow's hierarchy. If you don't know your value, it's easy, and everybody else cares about money, then my value gets tied to how many digits and numbers I have in a bank account. And so people have a billion dollars, still not feeling like they're good enough, just getting more and more. And they're winning the game, right? In the large sense, they're losing it and everybody's losing, right? Mm-hmm. We're not in here happy world that's making it more sustainable, connected and creative. We're not evolving forward. It's just this deep just selfishness. It just gets really enforced. And so when that sense of self dissolves, you realize you're connected to everything. You gain more by helping. Like there's been major studies in terms of, this is about also like 10 years ago, after $70,000, there's no more correlation between happiness and finances, Right. And that's probably more like 90,000. Now, after your basic needs are met, there's time for leisure and so on. Happiness was more done with meaning, purpose and relationships. That's what escalates happiness. More money doesn't do anything, really. Once you have a certain level of freedom. And so we've got to shift that focus to see how people get more connected to themselves, their heart, a deep sense of love. And they're very boundary dissolving. Right. So not just between myself and the environment, but also the boundary dissolving between identities, including nationalistic identities, right? So we're part of the same planet. Like that's, there's no escaping that. The lines are artificial, even though there's certain cultural elements to these boundaries. But we need to move more from seeing as, say, a citizen of a nation to being a planetary citizen or an earthling. It's just it's a necessary, more rounded, real approach. And right now our ecosystem, our ecological economic systems are tied to whatever you can say a country that we're in with fiat currency like so each country has its own pretty much currency there's 180 currencies and so if you want to change one to another that has to be this huge translation a lot of money costs and a lot of economic systems are collapsing worldwide because a sense of poverty so like in el salvador is an example their currency collapsed and so everything, the units of money and exchange of wealth became meaningless over there. So they had to adopt the US dollar as their currency. So now they're tied to their future and their well-being on the decisions made by the US government for the US currency, right? And this is going to keep happening around the world that stronger economic financial systems will, will continue to exist while the small ones, which is most of the world, they're not doing as well as the US economy, are going to continue to crash. And so they're going to lose their sense of autonomy and their sovereignty and so on, right? And so that increases this kind of empirical kind of framework that just has been there. And so something that was really able to come forward is cryptocurrencies. So I'll just focus on Bitcoin, for example, because it creates this world economic language, this unit of measurement that's not tied to any government. It's a peer-to-peer. It's decentralized. It's very resilient in terms of the blockchains distributed all across the planet on so many servers. It can't be attacked. So I think that technology brings a new way forward that is cross-boundaries, empowers the individual right now. So what I saw in terms of economics, that is just the huge 
huge thing to highlight is that money's created out of debt right now. Money, like, so the Federal Reserve makes money, you give an IOU. So right now there's three times more debt in the world than there is money. So that's going to keep increasing, creating more stress and tension. And so you need an economic system that's not based on debt. So blockchain, for example, it's 6.25 Bitcoins that are created every 10 minutes. But to even move into something like this, people have to dissolve their framework to see that more is possible. Outside of the regular reality, this government identity, I remember, I felt like for my parents' generation, when they look at the economic system, they're like, this is just the way life is. It's all they've known, right? And you really need that to dissolve, to be like, no, there's more possible. That was created and has flaws and we can keep creating things. And 97% of the money in the world right now is digital. It's just, it's just, it's not paper anymore. And so we have to see that we can create new digital ways of moving finances. And so the battery dissolving and deconditioning of psychedelics, I think can be an important aspect. And there's been conferences put together, like one's called like crypto psychedelics, kind of these two coming together. And a lot of people that got into the psychedelics, the crypto space got in because of looking for psychedelics online and having to pay with cryptocurrency. So there's this nice lean over but I think the open-mindedness, and so there's been major studies on the personality development and psilocybin, and the personality trait that changes the most is the one known as an openness, as opposed to a conservative kind of rigid system. And with openness, you're energetically open to the environment, to new ideas, to way of being, and openness is correlated with growth, creativity, and intelligence, right? So your system that was closed and has to keep things a certain way is like open into possibilities. And so I think as personalities continue to open up, it'll be easier to move to more adaptive economic systems. And because the current one I see is kind of really restricting us, our growth and development and causing a lot of destruction. I agree. And just to pinpoint that, and additionally, like the people who are marginalized by the current economic structure have so much to offer if they were not being oppressed to this point of being just in survival mode. There's so much creativity and value that every person can bring, but some people, large groups of people are really just being prevented from moving beyond just a level of barely surviving. What our world could be if everyone could be able to access enough of their basic needs to be able to move out of survival space and into where they have room to think creatively and explore and expand and contribute so much. That's huge. I think perhaps our collective creativity is maybe the greatest untapped resource. I think there's 70% of the population in the world is in poverty, right? So they're focused largely on survival. That's the yeah. hierarchy. They're in the first, first stage. I just want to make it through and have enough food and pay rent. And so their mind is gripped with that all day and they don't have time to relax and deepen and find their sense of purpose that could give so much to this planet. Mm -hmm. And we have the technology right now. We have the ways of being to make all this happen to have everybody's needs met. I think there's something like 10 times more food that we can grow that can go all around the world, but we give a lot of it just to animals. We can eat animals. And in terms of energies bottled up with the 1% pretty much in terms of energy, in terms of finances isn't flowing throughout Mm -hmm. the system. And so the way forward exists, but people aren't choosing it. Right. And so we need to change the hearts and the minds. And I think education is helpful, but it only also goes so far. It's that experience of deep interconnection mm-hmm. that makes just absolutely apparent that this is what has to happen. Yeah. Well, on a day when my heart has been feeling pretty discouraged about the direction of the world today, many days ahead, I'm sure I'll feel the same. And this is this conversation has brought a lot of hope to me. So I really appreciate you for coming to therapy chat today and for the information that you're disseminating to 
the widest possible audience to help that to the shifts that need to happen. So I empathize with you with what's happening today. Thanks. And Jahan, where can people find your book? And I don't know if you have a way for people to keep up with what you're doing, like a newsletter or something like that. Sure. Yeah. The book Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics or Transformation of Consciousness, Evolution on a Planet, an Integral Approach is found on all major platforms, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Targets, Google Reads. The audiobook is out now. It's found on Apple, Google, most major audiobook, audiobook sites. My website's psychedelicevolution.org. That's psychedelicevolution.org. I'm on Facebook. I think it's Jahan. On, it's facebook.com slash Jahan 101. And then I am on Instagram, Jahan Kamsazada. Perfect. I'll put your all those links to all of those things on the show notes for today. So I just want to really thank you again for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.